Hello and welcome to Guess What? You're wrong. Enjoy the show! Helpful tip of the day. Wasp will sting you. Leave them alone. Okay, let's go ahead and get this started here today. Welcome back to another episode of Guess What? You're on. You're on. That's right. Uh, today, we are actually going to go into story time again. Uh, we have LJ on site, and we're going to do a couple of few stories here about um, patriotic stuff, you know, going forward. Um, it is the 4th of July weekend, so we're going to move forward with that. What do you think about that, LJ? I'm good. Good? <laughs> Sound a little bit more excited, won't you? I did. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get right into this here today. Are you ready? And the first story we are going to move in here today is called A Gunpowder Story, The Heroism of Elizabeth Jane. In the autumn of 1777, the English decided to attack Fort Henry at Wheeling in northwestern Virginia. This was an important border fort named in honor of Patrick Henry and around which had grown up a small village of about 25 log houses. A band of Indians under the leadership of one Simon Gurdy was supplied by the English with muskets and ammunition and sent against the fort. This Gurdy was a white man who, when a boy, had been captured by Indians and brought up by them. He had joined their tribes and was a ferocious and bloodthirsty leader of savage bands. When the settlers at Wheeling heard that Simon Gurdy and his Indians were advancing on the town, they left their homes and hastened into the fort. Scarcely had they done so when the savages made their appearance. The defenders of the fort knew that a desperate fight must now take place, and there seemed little probability that they would be able to hold out against their assailants. They had only 42 fighting men, including old men and boys while the Indian force numbered about 500. What was worse, they had but a small amount of gunpowder. A keg containing the main supply had been left by accident in one of the village houses. This misfortune, as you will soon see, brought about the brave action of a young girl. After several encounters with the savages which took place in the villages, the defenders withdrew to the fort. Then a number of Indians advanced with loud yells, firing as they came the fire was returned by the defenders, each of whom had picked out his man and taken deadly aim. Most of the attacking party were killed, and the whole body of Indians fell back into the nearby woods, and there awaited a more favorable opportunity to renew hostilities. The men in the fort now discovered, to their great dismay, that the gunpowder was nearly gone. What was to be done? Unless they could get in their supply they would not be able to hold the fort, and they and their women and children would either be massacred or carried into captivity. Colonel Shepard, who was in command, explained to the settlers exactly how matters stood. He also told them of the forgotten keg of powder, which was in a house standing about 60 yards from the gate of the fort. It was plain to all that if any man should attempt to procure the keg, he would almost surely be shot by the lurking Indians. In spite of this, three or four young men volunteered to go on the dangerous mission. 
Colonel Shepard replied that he could not spare three or four strong men, as there were already too few for the defense. Only one man should make the attempt, and they might decide who was to go. This caused a dispute. Just then, a young girl stepped forward and said that she was ready to go. Her name was Elizabeth Zane, and she had just returned from a boarding school in Philadelphia. This made her brave offer all the more remarkable, since she had not been bred or grown up to the fearless life of the border. At first, the men would not hear of her running such a risk. She was told that it meant certain death, but she urged that they could not spare a man from the defense, and that the loss of one girl would not be an important matter. So after some discussion, the settlers agreed that she should go for the powder. The house, as had already been stated, stood about 60 yards from the fort, and Elizabeth hoped to run thither and bring back the powder in a few minutes. The gate was opened, and she passed through, running like a deer. A few straggling Indians were dodging about the log houses of the town. They saw the fleeing girl, but for some reason they did not fire upon her. They may have supposed that she was returning to her home to rescue her clothes. Possibly they thought it was a waste of good ammunition to fire at a woman, when they were so sure of taking the fort before long. So they looked on quietly while, with flying skirts, Elizabeth ran across the open and entered the house. She found the keg of powder, which was not large. She lifted it with both arms, and holding the precious burden close to her breast, she darted out of the house and ran in the direction of the fort. When the Indians saw what she was carrying, they uttered fierce yells and fired. The bullets fell like hail all around her, but not one so much as touched her garments. With the keg hugged to her bosom, she ran on and reached the fort in safety. The gate closed upon her just as the bullets of the Indians buried themselves in its thick panels. The rescued gunpowder enabled the little garrison to hold out until help arrived from the other settlements near Wheeling. And Gertie, seeing that there were no further hopes of taking Fort Henry, withdrew his band. Thus a weak but brave girl was the means of saving strong men with their wives and children. It was a heroic act, and Americans should never forget to honor the name of Elizabeth Zane. And on to the next story. A Race for Liberty. The True Story of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride Near midnight of April 18, 1775, a boat with muffled oars was rowed softly but swiftly across the Charles River from near Copps Hill in the northern peninsula to the opposite shore, not far from the foot of Bunker or Breed's Hill in Charleston, also a peninsula. They passed so near to a British man-of-war lying at anchor in the stream that they could hear the ringing rattle as the great vessel rocked on the slow waves, and could hear the voices of the watch on the deck. But the boat reached the shore without being discovered, and a young man who had sat in the bow, silent and watchful, sprang out promptly. He was Paul Revere, familiar to most American readers as the man who warned the people on the road to Lexington of the approach of the British troops. His friend in Charleston had seen two lights in the belfry of an old North Church in Boston, which was a signal agreed upon to show that the British were crossing the road to Cambridge. Deacon Larkin's black horse was ready for the messenger of warning, and in a few minutes Paul Revere was riding along the road on the southwest side of Charleston Hills, 
to the neck. Here he took the left-hand road leading through Cambridge. But the British had already landed. Only a short distance along the road grew some great shady trees, and out from their shadow two armed redcoats spurred on their horses to meet Revere. But on his course quickly turned the young patriot, closely followed by his foes. The swifter one, to shorten the distance, attempted to ride across a space from which clay had been dug out for brick-making. The water of the melting snows and ice had soaked the clay, making it a deep mire. When the horse had floundered out of this, Revere had got well in advance up the northerly or right-handed road, which led to Medford, this route being longer by a mile. Revere reached Lexington without further reverse, having roused and warned the sleepy families along the way. At a few minutes past twelve o'clock, the morning of the fateful April 19th, Revere rode along between the meeting house and Buckman's Tavern, northward past the green to the house of Reverend Jonas Clark, where the Patriots Hancock and Adams were staying here. For half an hour, rider and horse took a rest. Then arrived another messenger, William Dawes, who had come all the way by land through West Roxbury and Brookline. The two started off together to warn the people at Concord six miles farther on. They had gone but a short distance when another horseman came galloping up behind them. He proved to be Dr. Prescott of Concord, who had been spending a social evening with some friends in Lexington. He was truly, as Revere described him, a high son of liberty, and he lent his assistance in awakening the residents along the road and giving alarm. About halfway between two villages at a shady turn in the road, Revere, who was in advance of the others, was brought to a stand by a line of mounted redcoats, extended across the way. He took the avenue of escape, for he had not time to turn his horse entirely about, and rode through an open gateway just by him into a field. After him went two or more of the redcoats. Next, Dawes and Prescott came up, were met by others of the British, and turned into the field, pursued by some of the enemy. Revere had ridden towards the woods back of the field, with the intention of leaving his horse and escaping through the woods and fields on foot to Concord. But out from the shade of the trees there rushed onto him two other mounted redcoats, who made him a prisoner. Nearly 800 British regulars were at this moment on the march, and Concord, with its valuable military supplies, slept on. Unconscious that before the sun had reached Meridian, their village was to swarm with redcoats bent on destruction. Dr. Prescott, perceiving several red-coated horsemen near the woods, took his course at a gallop through the middle of the field. He knew both his horse and locality well, and led his pursuers a short but lively chase. Having distanced them a little, he wheeled his horse toward the road and spurred him on up over the wall, over which he made a clear leap to the highway. The discomfited redcoats turned back without attempting to imitate the breakneck feat. While the British were securing Revere and chasing Dr. Prescott, Dawes had turned about and ridden back the way he had come. But he too was pursued by a pair of mounted soldiers. His horse was quite fagged with long journey, and the fresh horses and his pursuers were almost up with him in the first quarter mile. Near the road at this point stood a farmhouse, all dark and silent and Dawes rode into its shadows and close up to the porch at full speed. 
As his horse stopped short, Dawes slapped his hand down on his leather breeches with a resounding thwack and called out as if to persons inside, Hello, boys! I've got two of them! The Redcoats were struck with the idea that a lot of armed Yankees would the next instant rush upon them, and they whirled their horses about and galloped away at their best speed. As soon as they were out of sight, Dawes resumed his course back toward Lexington. The next morning, the family found a big silver watch on the ground. Dawes had stopped so suddenly that it had flung from his pocket. He had felt the movement, but in the excitement of the moment, gave it no thought. His property was restored to him later. As soon as possible, pursuit of Dr. Prescott was made along the road, but it was a blank failure. The 10 or 12 redcoats soon started back toward Lexington with their solitary prisoner, Paul Revere. They were abusive at first, but he was so fearless and told them such alarming stories of the rallying of the Minutemen all along the route that they were much frightened, and when they came near Lexington and hear the bells ringing and the drums beating, they gave Revere no attention at all. And he slipped away from them without making any attempt to restrain him. So anxious were they now to make their own escape. The end of that one. Okay, now with that story ending, let's go on to our final uh, reading here. And I thought it appropriate to go ahead and end with the Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariable the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government the history of the present king 
of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He refused to assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such disillusions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, their state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for the purpose of obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat our substance. He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trades with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in the neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries as so as to render it as once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws and altering fundamentally the forms of our government. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. 
He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every state of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose charter is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions in our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounce our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and in peace, our friends." We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these United States are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from the allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And that's going to draw our storytelling to a close. What do you think about those stories, LJ? That's pretty good. Yeah. A little bit, little bit exciting, right? Long form for the attention span of kids today. But it is interesting stuff, nonetheless. And we, we do... Uh, Okay, okay, that's real funny. Uh, but we do need to keep uh, these types of stories in our hearts and minds as we go forward and celebrate the 4th of July. And before the July, everybody, and we are out. Until next time, I thank you for listening to me Babylon for a while. Love, peace, and chicken grease. And that's going to do it for the day. 
Thanks for hanging out with me and letting me bend your ear for a while. But before you go, don't forget. You're wrong. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night and God bless America.